As you're seated, if you would grab a Bible and open with me to Psalm 22. Psalm chapter 22, the book of Psalms is located in the middle of your Bibles. If you open to the middle, you are more than likely not too far from the book of Psalms. And every summer we take a break from our regular sermon series, in this case Luke, and we spend some time in the book of Psalms. And uh, we're going to do that again this summer. We started back in 2017 and uh, with Psalm 1, and this morning we will pick up in Psalm 22. And our goal is to go through about six Psalms this summer over the next six weeks. As we jump back in, let me just kind of bring us up to speed. It's helpful to remember that the book of Psalms are more than just poetry. They are poetry, but they're also timely. So the Holy Spirit inspired the writers who wrote out of their own circumstances. So the Psalms don't just contain truth, but they show us all kinds of human experiences and emotions and the ups and downs of living life in a fallen world. The Psalms are also songs. The Psalms are also songs. They are meant to be musical, which is why in the superscript at the head of many of the Psalms, it will say, to the choir master. That's a shorthand way of saying to Matt Thornburg, right? To the choir master, this is the song that we are to sing. And oftentimes, as in Psalm 22, there is some sort of instruction about the melody or the cadence, the rhythm of the song. In this case, it's according to the doe of the dawn. I looked and looked, and I can't find anyone who really knows exactly what that means. So we assume it's likely, as in other psalms, if we take other psalms as a pattern, some sort of musical instruction. There's a reason that they're songs. They have, in fact, been the church's songbook for over 2,000 years. Think about that. For over 2,000 years, when the people of God gather together on the Lord's Day, as you and I are doing right now, they have opened up to the psalms and they have sung them. Some are songs of praise. Some are songs of lament. Some are songs of joy and hope. And others are songs of anguish and questioning. But they all teach us something about our lives. And more importantly, they teach us about the God who is in control of all things. So if you have made your way to Psalm 22, you can see that this is a psalm of David. This is the same David that killed Goliath. It's the same David that became king of Israel. Now, we don't know a lot about the circumstances that prompted Psalm 22. John Calvin was convinced that this psalm was about David's suffering under King Saul. That may be true, but we're simply not given that kind of detail in this psalm. Clearly, David is describing some heart-wrenching anguish of some kind. There is some kind of suffering that is affecting David profoundly, but we're not sure exactly what that is. Listen to how Psalm 22 begins. Verse 1, the word of the Lord says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words 
of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now, if you are familiar with the life and ministry of Jesus, and I would imagine that's many of us in this room, then this psalm likely sounds familiar right from the start. I mean, look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words that Jesus uttered from the cross. Shortly before surrendering his life as the sacrifice for the sin of all who believe, on the cross, Matthew quotes Jesus as saying in Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this is not merely a coincidence. It doesn't, it's not merely that Jesus happened to say the same words that Psalm 22 records. Because Jesus knew the Old Testament. Jesus knew the Psalms. And there's something important about Jesus quoting this psalm. Here's what's important about it. By quoting this psalm, Jesus is applying this psalm, Psalm 22, to himself. And Jesus is showing everyone who is gathered there at the foot of the cross that day as he hung before them. And Jesus is showing everyone who has read this scripture since then that Psalm 22 is a psalm that is about himself. Now, this is, this is a bit rare to us because this happens nowhere outside of Scripture. Specifically, it happens nowhere outside of the person in the work of Jesus Christ. So, for example, when we use phrases from the Bible and quote them, applying them to our circumstances, we are not claiming to be the fulfillment of that Scripture verse. Let me show you what I mean. For example, if... Someone comes looking for your roommate this afternoon, and you say to them, I don't know, I don't know where he went, I'm not my brother's keeper, right? You, you're quoting Cain from the Bible. You're not claiming to be the fulfillment of Cain, right? At least I hope not. Or, for example, if you're encouraging maybe your father today on Father's Day, eat, drink, and be merry, you, you are not claiming to be the fulfillment of the evil, queen, evil king Jesus alludes to when he talks about eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We're just using expressions from the Bible, but Jesus is doing something different. He's not just using an expression. As he hangs on the cross, he's not thinking, I'm in a lot of pain and agony. You know what? Psalm 22 kind of characterizes how I feel. No. Jesus is showing us what Psalm 22 is ultimately about. After all, Jesus is the Holy Son of God. And you and I are not. Which brings us to a question. And the question is this. If David is the author of Psalm 22 then did he experience any of this at all? Or is Psalm 22 100% prophetic? Right? Is any of this recounting David's experience or is all of it just looking ahead to Jesus and only fulfilled in Jesus? Well, to be sure, David did experience suffering. 
In fact, David, as he writes Psalm 22 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is recounting the anguish of his suffering. And although we don't know the exact circumstances of the suffering that he recounts here, we do know that his life contained lots of suffering. And so consistent with what we have already seen in the Psalms that we've looked at over the last several summers, Psalm 22 is partly autobiographical. It's partly David recounting his own experiences. But I say partly because most commentators agree that the suffering in Psalm 22 is far more than anything that we know David experienced. And this is only partly autobiographical because it's only partly about David. Jesus' use of Psalm 22 makes it clear that the ultimate interpretation of Psalm 22 is about himself. So is Psalm 22 about David and his suffering? Yes. But more fully, it's fulfilled in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Remember the connection between King David and Jesus. I mean, we sang about that this morning, didn't we? Didn't we sing? He's the root, he's David's root and the Lamb of, of God who ransomed the slave. And King David served as a forerunner of sorts for Jesus. Jesus would be of the house and line of David. Jesus would sit on David's throne. Jesus would come as the perfect David. In fact, so many of King David's psalms in the Bible prepare us for the better king to come, King Jesus. And so I think God's Holy Spirit is using the circumstances and the writings of King David to communicate David's heart, yes, but more importantly to point beyond David to the true David, the Messiah to come. And we know that because Jesus tells us so by revealing from the cross that Psalm 22 is about himself. <clears throat> now, you could be thinking to yourself right about now, okay, great, Psalm 22 is about David, but it also goes beyond David. Psalm 22 is about Jesus, but why is that so important? It's important because Psalm 22 takes us behind the actual things done to Jesus during his crucifixion and gives us what Jesus felt. Or to put it another way, the gospel writers tell us what Jesus experienced externally. Psalm 22 tells us what Jesus experienced internally. If you've ever wondered, I wonder what Jesus was thinking as he hung on the cross. I wonder what Jesus felt as he hung on the cross. This is, this is some of what Jesus experienced. Some of what Jesus felt. And that, friends, is important. And remember, Jesus had only ever known complete unity with the Father. And although he was tempted in every way common to humanity, Jesus never sinned. Jesus never experienced the strain between sinners and a holy God. He had never felt the weight of rebellion against God on his shoulders. 
And yet we know from 2 Corinthians 5.21 that at the cross, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. And so Psalm 22 tells us what it felt like for the perfect Son of God, who had known nothing but perfect unity and harmony with the Father, to feel the weight of sin. Now, to be clear, even on the cross, Jesus was not a sinner. Peter helps us and makes this crystal clear for us when he writes of Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 22-24. He, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Jesus was without sin himself, and yet, as Peter writes, he bore our sin in his body on the cross. He fulfilled if you think about it, the prophecy of Isaiah 53, which said that he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, not his own. He was crushed for our iniquities, not his own. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. Because we all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Psalm 22 tells us just a little bit of what that felt like. So, if you look at the text itself, that was a really long setup, I know. Some of that was just a setup into the Psalms themselves that we'll spend the next week in. But if you look at Psalm 22, it essentially has two parts. You want to know what those two parts are? I'll tell you. Part one and part two, right? <laughs> you were prepared for that. Part one, we could call the agony of the Savior. The agony of the Savior. Part one is really verses 1 through 21a, or the first part of 21. We're going to call that this morning the agony of the Savior. Part two is verse 21b, or the second part of 21, through the end of the chapter, so through 31. We could call it God's glory in saving the Son. So part one is the agony of the Savior. Part two is God's glory in saving the Son. Let's begin with the agony of the Savior. Like our own suffering and David's suffering, and more importantly, the suffering of the Savior, suffering does not always happen linearly. 
It doesn't begin with a problem and move cleanly to a solution. Instead, we can see suffering in verses 1 and 2. And then the writer remembers the faithfulness of God in the past in verses 3 through 5. So he, suffering and then faithfulness of God. And then move back to suffering in verses 6 through 8. And then the author remembers the goodness of God in verses 9, 10, and 11. And then we get back to suffering in 12 and following. And, and you see how it goes back and forth. It's a lot like our own suffering, isn't it? When we're dealing with fear or anxiety or pain, we don't have a moment of suffering or a moment of anxiety or a moment of pain, and then we remember the promises of God and everything is immediately better. It might be better for a moment or for a season, but oftentimes the pain comes back. Oftentimes we, we deal with the anxious thoughts, and we deal with fear. This psalm relates to us because we all know what it's like to experience the back and forth of trusting in the promises of God and all the while feeling the hurt of our experiences ebb and flow. To know that God is true and good and right and on his throne and yet experience the ups and downs of everyday life and the emotional roller coaster of living in a fallen world. And we know that that wrestling sometimes continues for a long time. And sometimes victory, sometimes overcoming is less like a light switch being turned on and more like the slow brightening of a sunrise as the shadows begin to slowly creep away. And since Psalm 22 is giving us a window into Jesus' experience on the cross... And then what do we see when we look through that window? I think we see three primary things. First of all, we see the forsakenness of the Son. Again, look at verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. For 2,000 years, scholars have debated the precise meaning of Jesus being forsaken. What exactly did it mean for Jesus to be or feel forsaken? So get out your pen, because this morning I'm going to end all speculation. <laughs> no. In fact, I think much of that speculation rests on things that the Bible simply doesn't tell us. We don't know the precise details exactly of what it meant to feel forsaken by the Father. But we can know what it doesn't mean. In other words, we can know what is out of bounds. So, for example, we know, according to verse 24, that Jesus was not despised by the Son or by the Father. Verse 24 teaches us that. In other words, there was no rift in the Trinity at the cross. There was no fracturing of the relationship. Jesus continued to be perfect Son in harmony with the Father and the Holy Spirit even on the cross. We also know, according to verse 24, that the Father did not actually turn His face away from the Son. So there's a song that we sing, has a line, the Father turned His face away. 
I think this, what this song is trying to capture, and it's true in its capture of that, is that the greatest suffering on the cross that Jesus experienced was the weight of sin and the desperate call for help to his Father. But did the Father actually turn his face away from the Son? Well, verse 24 tells us he did not. He did not look away from his Son. On the cross, Jesus experienced forsakenness. On the cross, he experienced for the first time what we know from birth, the agony of sin. But that's not the only thing we see of Jesus on the cross from Psalm 22. We not only see the forsakenness of the Son, we see the trustworthiness of the Father. If we were to question, okay, is Jesus truly trustworthy and we wanted to find a source, we could find no better source than the Son of God who has existed for all of eternity in perfect unity and harmony with the Father, who knows the Father intimately better than we will ever know Him because He is both man and God. So Jesus, of all people, knows the character of the Father. And even in his moment of greatest agony and greatest pain and greatest suffering, Jesus continues to rest in the trustworthiness of the Father. He still trusts that the Father is good, that the Father is accomplishing his plan, that the Father hasn't lost control, that the Father isn't bewildered by how things are going, that the Father can see above the fog of this crucifixion and Jesus' present suffering to see the goal in mind that he is working all things towards. More specifically, in verses 3 through 5, Jesus remembers God's deliverance in Israel's past. Verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What's Jesus doing as he hangs in agony on the cross? He is remembering the faithfulness of God to his people. He's remembering how God delivered Israel in the past and God's promise to deliver his people in the present and in the future. And then in verses 9 through 11, Jesus, even from the cross, remembers God's trustworthiness to work His saving plan, even from infancy. Look at verse 9. Yet you are He who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Jesus is remembering how God has faithfully provided and faithfully led and faithfully blessed and faithfully directed. Just as David remembers and all the more so Jesus remembers. And then based on the Father's powerful work in Israel's past, And the Son's trust in the Father's work in the present, He petitions the Father 
out of faith and trust in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Psalm 22 shows us what Jesus was thinking from the cross, where he was putting his trust and his confidence. But Psalm 22 is also a pattern for us. It shows us what it looks like to trust in the Father, even in the midst of our greatest suffering. We're taught to remember God's faithful work for his people in the past. So that in the, even in the moments of your hurt and your anxiety and your fear and your doubt and your questioning and your suffering, we open up the pages of God's word and we read about his work, his faithfulness over and over again, both at the macro level with nations, peoples, and nature, and at the micro level as he works in the hearts of individual believers. We remember God's faithful work in the past. We also remember God's faithfulness to us even when we couldn't help ourselves. We remember the way God has worked in our lives to this point, the way he's blessed us specifically, the ways he's, he's helped us specifically. And based on that, we trust confidently in God even in our present trials and suffering. So as we reflect on the agony of the Savior, we see the forsakenness of the Son. We see the trustworthiness of the Father. Third, we see the obedience of the Son. If you remember Paul, when he writes to the church in Philippi in chapter 2, he writes to them and says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And by being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Psalm 22 shows us just a little of what that obedience to the point of death felt like. If you've ever read Philippians 2 and wondered, okay, what does that obedience to the point of death mean? Did it just mean Jesus was obedient and then died? Well, it means that, but it means so much more as Psalm 22 helps us to understand. In fact, just look at verse 6. Remember, this is Jesus from the cross, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people, which should bring to mind again, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 7, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The obedience of the Son meant being despised and rejected by the men and women around him. 
And this squares with the gospel accounts that we read of men and women passing by Jesus as he hung on the cross saying things like, well, he saved others, why can't he save himself? If he was truly the Son of God, then he could come down off the cross. And there were those who mocked him, spit on him, and got in his face. Verse 12 goes on. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and and ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. You think about these, even just these several verses here and The soldiers surrounding Jesus likened to strong bulls of Bashan. The people who gathered around him, according to verse 13, and opened wide their mouths to mock him, to ridicule him, to laugh about his suffering. Jesus says, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, which squares with what we know of what happened to the body physiologically at crucifixion. As they were nailed to the cross and then the cross was raised and then lowered several feet into the hole and dropped and was enough to dislodge bones. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up. Just literally how someone would die on the cross. They would suffocate because they would, over time, lose the strength to push themselves up to breathe. My tongue sticks to my jaws, and what did Jesus say from the cross? I'm thirsty. Bring me something to drink. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Again, an image of crucifixion. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Do you see the connections to the crucifixion of the Son of God? Look at the way Psalm 22 is used just in Luke 20, or and just in Matthew 27 alone. They divide my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. When they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me and wag their heads. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him if he desires him. 
For he said, I am the Son of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see the great depths of what it looks like to become obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Now, that brings us to the second part of this text. And it's almost like a hinge as we move from the agony of the Savior to part two, which is God's glory in saving the Son. God's glory in saving the Son. A couple of themes to point out here in verses 21b through 31. First of all, it is God's glory in saving the Son. The Son. So this is Jesus celebrating the saving work of the Father even when that salvation had not yet been completed. That's so significant. Jesus is celebrating the saving work of the Father when that saving work has not yet been completed. Jesus is beckoning Israel to worship God for God's salvation through Jesus when that salvation is not yet complete. Why? Because he trusts that much in the character and power and sufficiency and control and sovereignty of the creator God. Look at verse 21b. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Remember, this is Jesus still on the cross, but he knows The rescue has been accomplished. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. O you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. But has heard when he cried to him. God the Father hears the cries of God the Son and rescues him according to plan. Like this is the song of not only the Son of God as he redeems humanity, but then this is the song of the redeemed. This is the song of all of us who trust in the finished work of Jesus and are saved from the punishment of our sin. This is our song. I mean, no wonder believers have sung this song for 2,000 years. Because God, through Jesus, paid the penalty for our sin. God, through Jesus, purchased our redemption. He did not disown Jesus. He did not hide from Jesus. As Psalm 16, verse 10 says, which is another Davidic psalm where he speaks the words of Jesus. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
So this is David writing, but he's writing prophetically of Jesus. So this is Jesus speaking, saying, you will not abandon my soul to to ultimate eternal death, to, to eternal separation from you. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And just in case there's any doubt about whether or not David writing this is actually speaking of Jesus, Paul tells us in Acts 13.35 that although David wrote these words, he was ultimately writing of Jesus. God did not abandon his son, but he saved his son. And by saving his son, he saved all who believe. He saved a people for himself, which is the second theme here that we see in God's glory in saving the son is not only that God receives glory in saving a son, but we see God's glory in saving a people for himself through the son. Just look at verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You can see the, the nations, the nations. Jesus' death not only secured salvation for the Jews who believe, but the Gentiles, the non-Jews who believe as well. For kingship belongs to the Lord, verse 28, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You hear Jesus' hopeful confidence in the saving, sufficient, fulfilling work of the Father to redeem the Son. His death was not a waste. So what do we do in response to psalms like this, Psalm 22? Let me quickly just give you five application points and uh, encourage you to write those down. They'll be on the screen and then reflect on those throughout this week as you, again, spend some time in Psalm 22. First, we should reflect on the willing suffering of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we who trust in him are no longer forsaken. Like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that was our song. But in Christ, we are no longer forsaken. In fact, when I was in youth group, I used to sing a song, I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. Secondly, we follow Jesus' pattern in our suffering. What was Jesus' pattern? Well, Jesus shows us that the Father is completely trustworthy so that even in our suffering, we continue to trust the Father. I would encourage you to go back this week, read back through Psalm 22 and just circle or underline or jot down in a journal all the ways you see Jesus trusting in the Father even as he suffers one of the most horrific 
deaths known to humanity. Third, we should trust and rest in the perfect obedience of the Son. Although we were not and are not completely obedient, we trust and rest in Jesus' perfect obedience. You should remind us of that every time. When you fail, when you sin this week, even in the midst of fighting against sin and running from temptation, we should be reminded that all those who trust in Jesus all those who by faith have turned from sin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we rest in Jesus' perfect obedience. Fourth, we glorify, we should glorify the Father for saving the Son. That's what Jesus does. He rightly directs our attention to glorify the Father for the salvation of the Son. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And hallelujah, what a father. And finally, we should proclaim the glory of God's salvation to the nations. That's what the end of this psalm is all about. Posterity, future generations shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to a coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. There are generations in this room. There are generations in your community. There are generations on the other side of the building right now. New generations who need to hear of the salvation of the Lord. Of God saving his son and accomplishing our salvation through the death of Jesus Christ. And God involves us in that mission for his glory.